This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I'd like to start today by noting that in our second segment of today's program, we'll be speaking with our friend Stephen J. Harper, author and adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University. He has a new piece out in Common Dreams. It is titled, Help Wanted, Five Rational Republicans Willing to Save the U.S. Economy. We confess to being a little bit pessimistic about the notion of finding rational Republicans at this point, but we look forward to speaking with Mr. Harper about that matter. Well, I guess I should explain the matter in question is our looming national debt limit. It has a ceiling on it, and a lot of politics is being played about raising that ceiling. You'll need to stick around for that discussion. We should also start with a bit of follow-up for today's program. One of our loyal listeners, Bruce, tuned in some time back when we, well, when I talked about how I rather ill-advisedly once climbed inside of a beaver lodge to take a look. Yeah, thanks for sending that video, Bruce, of a guy that filmed his <laughs> entrance into a beaver lodge. About the time that arrived in my mailbox, I saw a piece in the old Farmer's Almanac describing someone in Michigan who had gotten carved up pretty good by a large beaver. They have very sharp teeth, and they decide that they're going to go after you. Well, you, it's, just, it's just not something you want to have happen, so yeah. So we must take the official policy here at Radio Parallax that you should not try this at home, especially if it's the beaver's home. Bruce queried where the Beaver Lodge in question was down in the region of the American River, and I had to note with some sadness that it washed away some years back during a particularly high rainfall, high water year. Some other follow-up I'd like to mention is uh, our good pal Guy, who's, as we speak, in the studio, Lower Freeborn for KDVS, making sure that this show can be heard locally in the greater Sacramento area. After talking about the North Pole, (laughs) the wonders of the North Pole on last week's program, Guy expressed the notion that he, that he didn't know some of that stuff and found it quite interesting. And you know, that's what we're here for. No, not beavers in the North Pole, Ms. Vermillion. We're here to provide interesting looks at things. Oh. Now, one look we provided on last week's program that had to be cut due to time constraints was uh, we, we posed the question of, is there a North Star on Mars? And the short answer to that is, no, there's not. But if you were strolling on the Martian surface or plan to do so in the future... Keep in mind that you can use the star Deneb to give you a pretty good idea of where North is on the red planet. Guy wondered aloud after broadcasting our show as to whether there really was a southern pole star. And it turns out there is. There is a star in the southern hemisphere that's within one degree of the actual south pole. Unfortunately, it's a fifth magnitude star. And the magnitudes go up depending upon how dim something is. Polaris, the North Star, is a second magnitude, which is pretty good, pretty respectable. By the time you reach the sixth or sixth and a half magnitude, well, that's about the best the human eye can do. Another astronomy news, I would note that it has just come to our attention that Proxima Centauri, the very closest star to us on Earth, aside from our sun, of course, a star confirmed as having a planet back in 2016, apparently has three. Proxima Centauri b, this is the one that they confirmed back in 2016, had Proxima Centauri D added to it a couple years back, although this is not absolutely nailed down, I, I think. But they believe there's a star about five times bigger than the Earth, which is outside of the habitable zone. And now, as of last year, they found 
a small planet that's inside that habitable zone of Proxima Centauri. It's reckoned to be about 25% the size of us, planet Earth, which makes it about the size of Mars. Mars is only one-tenth the mass of the Earth. It's, it's got one half of our diameter, but, but you know how it is from high school math. If you compare two spheres, and one of them has twice the diameter of the first one, it actually has eight times the internal volume, which I'm sure is way more high school math than you wanted to delve into this morning. I would note that if you take the time to look up on the web some of the information about Proxima Centauri b, you will be impressed. Unlike our sun, which tends to be very, very regular in how much energy it puts out, uh, red dwarf stars, and Proxima Centauri is a red dwarf, vary tremendously in how much energy they put out. They have these sort of solar flares on steroids that increase the energy being emitted by the star by a factor sometimes of thousands. If there's life on that planet, it better be hiding. Anyway, enough of that. Let's jump to a joke. Well, a meme, actually. It's a picture of Kid Rock and Ted Nugent, which somebody captioned, guys who know how to make music for people who know precisely how much Sudafed they can get for a stolen catalytic converter. I don't know much about Kid Rock, but I never did think uh, very highly of Ted Nugent. A friend of mine from medical school, Mark Schusig, once went to a concert featuring Ted Nugent. He noted that about a minute into a song that the guy next to him swore was Dog Eat Dog, he had to point out to him that the song was not, in fact, Dog Eat Dog, which I think says a lot about the kind of people that, you know, like Ted Nugent. Although we don't really know whether his fans are out there stealing catalytic converters. But if I were going to bet... All right, and one more item of follow-up. We have to note with some sadness that, yes, it does appear that poor construction techniques did lead to the death toll in the Turkish earthquake. We suspected that might be the case, and as the data comes in, it turns out that, yes, it's true. Oh, and here's one more item that got cut due to time constraints on last week's program. Bolivia's state airline has hired an interspecies communicator to find a passenger's missing pet cat. Apparently, the disappearance of Tito, who was lost before he was supposed to be caged in a cargo hold, has made headlines all over Bolivia. Consumer rights official Jorge Silva explained that the cat psychic can communicate with Tito to find out where he is. And he's received messages that he's alive. Cans of tuna have been placed around the airport, and Silva noted, we are exhausting all our resources to find Tito. And if any cat psychics are listening to today's program, we hope they can help out. And how about a little Andy Borowitz? Headline from the Borowitz Report, dateline February 13th. Extraterrestrials admit responsibility for unidentified objects, but claim they were only monitoring weather. Noted Borowitz, the revelation appeared in an official statement released to the American media by an organization calling itself the Intergalactic Command Force. The aliens said they were surprised that their high-altitude objects had gone undetected for so long. And, you know, we missed three other Borowitz reports uh, concerning Donald Trump. Here's some headlines from those previous reports. Agents find the Declaration of Independence in Donald Trump's storage unit. Or, Trump calls for termination of the Constitution, except for the Fifth Amendment. And finally, Trump claims Melania supported Dr. Oz because she is attracted to men who are unfit to govern. 
Well, you know what that music means. We're going to launch into the good, the bad, and the ugly. We have a bit of a backlog here, so we're going to do two rounds of it. How's that sound? Round one, according to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for self-esteem. After the rapper and producer Dr. Dre got awarded the first annual Dr. Dre Global Impact Award at the Grammys. As he held the Dr. Dre Award aloft, Dre told the audience, never compromise your vision at all. Well, yeah, maybe, but to us it kind of sounds like the fix was in on that. And speaking of fixes, we're going to resist the temptation to talk about Super Bowl 57. And we're also not going to delve into the Edward McMillan International Producer of the Year Award and how that wound up being awarded to Edward McMillan. How about the Interplanetary Producer of the Year Award? It's in the works. It was, on the other hand, a bad week a couple weeks back for plain English. Or is it woke English? after the Associated Press amended a policy advising staff to avoid dehumanizing, that's in quotes, the labels, such as the poor, the mentally ill, the French. Apparently at that point, online wags had wondered if people in France should now be called people experiencing Frenchness, or perhaps assigned French at birth. Radio Parallax suggests that they go with Frenchiness instead of the French. And yes, we will be consulting with our French language expert, Gordon Smith, on on this very topic. Our suspicion is that the French don't object to being called the French. Although I think I will take the liberty of speaking for the Portuguese in noting that Representative Santos is a disgrace to our people. And yeah, he is Brazilian, but that's, you know, I'm talking about where his people came from before that. Enough said. And finally, round one, it was an ugly week last week for our legal system, or perhaps I should call it our prison system. The news is that two Massachusetts lawmakers want to let prison inmates reduce their sentences by donating organs. A bill sponsored by Democrat representatives Judith Garcia and Carlos Gonzalez would offer sentence reductions of up to a year for organ donations. Thus, they say, quote, broadening the pool of potential donors, unquote. Inmate advocate Romilda Pereira said, harvesting organs just doesn't feel right. Yeah, give you my spleen? I'm using it. All right, round two. It was a good week last week for tech manipulation, I dare say, after Canada's CBC News revealed that Le Nouveau Duluth, which is Montreal's highest-rated restaurant on TripAdvisor, does not, in fact, exist. TripAdvisor, for its part, blamed the dozens of ecstatic reviews written as a prank on, quote, a failure in human moderation practices, end quote. To which we would add that, a, that failures in human moderation practices seem to be rampant these days, but more on that later. On the other hand, it was a bad week, I would say a very bad week, for taking your work home after it surfaced that Jose Ruben Nava Noriega, who is director of a zoo in Mexico, 
was accused of having four of the zoo's ten pygmy goats slaughtered and cooked for a banquet he was putting on. Now, as much as Mr. McMillan is a fan of birria tacos, he has to agree this, this is not right. Well, mostly not right. And we'd have to say it was an ugly week, this is now several weeks back, for using emergency services with the news that a Florida man and woman, and yes, yes, we know that that, that headline, Florida man, it's going to telegraph some of what follows. But it turns out, yes, that a Florida man and woman were arrested after they called 911 to get help moving the contents of a home they'd broken into. Yes, responding deputies from the Polk County Sheriff's Office found the pair inside a home they'd entered through an unlocked door and recognized the man as a suspect in a burglary of a Dollar General store earlier that same day. Apparently, the woman explained that she'd called 911 hoping cops might help them move some large items from the house and give them a ride to the airport so they could visit New York City for the weekend. The sheriff's office said the deputies did give them a ride, but it was to the Polk Pokey. This is one of those stories that seems too good to be true. We'll have to see if we can verify this for next week's program. We did do a, a cursory check, and it, it seemed like it passed muster, so there you go. Right, let's move into a couple of science stories that are sort of cool. In last week's program, we talked about the surprising news that undersea landslides, massive undersea landslides, may be moving huge amounts of carbon down into the deep abyss of the ocean and perhaps sequestering it away so it won't factor into global warming. We certainly hope that pans out, and, and we hope that this pans out. This, in this case, is a study of particles in the Greenland ice core, which seems to indicate that volcanoes are emitting up to three times more climate cooling gases than previously thought. Turns out that sulfate aerosols do have a cooling effect on the climate. They alter clouds and they reflect solar radiation. If you remember the sunsets back in 1992 after the explosion of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines, you'll know what I'm talking about. This piece in New Scientist notes that gases released by volcanoes, marine phytoplankton, and the burning of fossil fuels all contribute to the production of sulfate aerosols, but measuring the contribution from each source is hard, so there's uncertainty about the climate impact. So to resolve this, the University of Washington looked at sulfate particles in the Greenland ice, and these clever folks gauged the levels of various isotopes of sulfur from which they could tell where the sulfates came from, volcanoes or other. Their conclusion was that volcanic sulfate emissions were much higher than expected, even in the years without major eruptions. Anyway, it remains to be seen whether this is going to have a major effect on climate, but it certainly will allow them to make better climate models in the future. And speaking of the oceans, it's a riddle that has long puzzled scientists. Of the 14 million tons of plastic that's thought to enter the oceans each year, only about 1% is ever detected in sampling surveys. A new study suggests that some of the missing garbage is being eaten by bacteria that live in seawater. Evidently, researchers at the Royal Netherlands Institute for Sea Research treated plastic with UV light to mimic sunlight, which broke it down into smaller chunks. They then fed it to Rhodococcus ruber, a common bacterium which is known to be able to transform harmful pollutants into harmless molecules. Sure enough, the bacteria did its work and it turned the plastic into carbon dioxide. I know what you're thinking now. Well, that's, that, there's a downside to that. 
These researchers estimated that Rhodococcus ruber alone can probably break down more than 1% available plastic in one year. And finally, if you've ever taken a biology class, it looks back at the origins of life and how the complexities arose throughout geologic time. You will no doubt recall that there's kind of a gray area between organisms that are composed of one cell and things that are more complex, wherein cells get together and cooperate. We're talking about things like sponges. Although I've never done so, I, my understanding from biology class back in the day was that if you take a sponge and tear it up into little itty-bitty pieces, the sponge cells will, with time, rearrange back into a new sponge. And according to an article by Claire Ainsworth in the February 4th edition of New Scientist, another organism has been found, or shall I say, an alliance between simple organisms has been found, which makes the picture even more complex and interesting. To quote from the piece, a giant trumpet-shaped cell that skulks in the bottom of ponds has given scientists a new clue about how single-celled creatures may have taken the first steps toward evolving into multicellular ones, a key transition in the evolution of life. For this to happen, there had to be a benefit for single cells to club together, such as improved reproduction or feeding. Studies investigating these ideas are focused mainly on creatures that form groups or colonies in which some cells develop specialized functions and where they remain glued together for some or all of the time. Biologists think they may represent a stage of evolution that is partway down the path to multicellularity. Meanwhile, Shashank Shekhar at Emory University in Atlanta and colleagues have spotted a simpler, reversible form of multicellular behavior. This is in Stentor coruleus, a single-celled protist that can sometimes reach two millimeters in length. They evidently were studying Stentor in a lab dish when scientists noted that individual cells used a fringe of whip-like cilia around their, quote, heads, unquote, to generate pairs of vortices to suck food into their, quote, mouths, unquote. Furthermore, while some cells were freely swimming around, other cells stuck to the dish and formed colonies. He wondered whether this helped them trap more food. Well, they took a look and decided that it did, prompting them to ask, if this is so advantageous, why don't stentor cells stick together all the time? They concluded that it's probably because the benefit is unequal, with the stronger cells getting a better deal than the weaker ones. No, Mr. Will, this is quite apart from the whole issue of sea monkeys. <laughs> yes, and while this may be boring to you, I'm intrigued by the comments made in the article that where, they, where the scientists said by giving up a little bit of their independence, they're benefiting as a whole. While the colonies remain roughly constant in size, each stentor comes and goes like a guest at an open house party. We do kind of think that the metaphor here is going to break down when we get to how the, some of the stronger cells get a better deal than the weaker cells and like, you know, the guy that shows up at the house party and eats all the pizza. Anyway, I think it's fair to say that this whole situation provides an unusual and elegant possible route for the early evolution of multicellularity that had not quite been on the radar before. And no, we don't know whether they're going to refer to it as the open house party theory in the future, but we hope so. You know, now that you put the idea out there, Mr. Merlin, I, I can't stop thinking about sea monkeys, damn you. Now, those of you who are of a certain age will recall reading your comic books back in the day and noting advertisements within for sea monkeys. If you sent a certain amount of money off to wherever it was, they would mail you a kit from which you could develop what they called sea monkeys. 
Now, who among us has not been amused by the antics of playful monkeys? They are certainly among nature's most amusing creatures. So the idea that you could get a kit and they would send you something called sea monkeys intrigued a lot of people. Although I never sent any money in, I, I know that a lot of people did. They, in turn, were mailed eggs of brine shrimp and a kit which allowed them to bubble air through the brine they constructed, after which the, the shrimp would hatch from their small eggs. Now, I've heard commentary from such people that the results they got were about as interesting as a bowl of dust. Personally, I think brine shrimp were a little more interesting than that. Although I would have to add, not so much so that you don't mind feeding them to your tropical fish. Yes, tropical fish love chomping down on these little crustaceans. And the situation is, as it so often is in nature, great for the eater and bad for the ED. And yes, I did just make up that word. But why is an ED a word? Because since we're speaking about eating, I have to confess to falling victim to an item of clickbait, which came my way on the laptop. The teaser was the pirate who penned the first English language guacamole recipe. And frankly, Miss Merlin, I could not resist the juxtaposition of guacamole and pirates. I would have clicked on it too. All right. To quote from the piece by Luke Fader, which appeared in the Atlas Obscura, there's this. For all the perceived glamour of piracy, its practitioners lived poorly and ate worse. Skirting death, mutiny, and capture left little room for comfort or transformative culinary experiences. The greatest names in piracy, wealthy by today's standards, ate as one might on a poorly provisioned camping trip. Dried beef, bread, and warm beer. The seas were no place for an adventurous appetite. But when one gifted pirate permitted himself a curiosity for food, he played a pioneering role in spreading ingredients and cuisines. The Pirate in question is William Dampier, and his food writing firsts included the use of the words barbecue, tortilla, soy sauce, breadfruit, and wouldn't you know it, he recorded the first ever recipe for guacamole. Now, it turns out this pirate was a prolific diarist, and he kept a journal wrapped in a wax-sealed bamboo tube throughout his journeys. When he had a year-long prison sentence in Spain, in 1694, presumably for piracy, he converted those notes into a novel that became a bestseller and seminal travelogue. Parts of A New Voyage Around the World read like a 17th century episode of No Reservations, with Dampier playing a high-stakes version of Anthony Bourdain. It's noted that, aside from writing groundbreaking observations on previously unresearched subjects in meteorology, maritime navigation, and zoology, food was a constant throughout his work. So it was that he wrote of a fruit in the Bay of Panama as big as a large lemon with skin like black bark and pretty smooth. Lacking distinct flavor, he wrote, the ripened fruit was mixed with sugar and lime juice and beaten together on a plate. Yes, evidently the English language's first recipe for guacamole. Later in the Philippines, Dampier wrote of young mangoes that locals cut into two pieces and pickled them with salt and vinegar in which they put some cloves of garlic which is reputedly the English language's first recipe for mango chutney. Dampier was also the first person to use the term chopsticks, cashew, or kumquat. And although I certainly did not know this, in the years following its publication, A New Voyage became an international bestseller. It skyrocketed Dampier to wealth and fame. 
The work was the first of its kind and generated a hunger among European audiences for travel writing, serving as an inspiration for Defoe's Robinson Crusoe and Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Charles Darwin brought a copy of A New Voyage with him on the Beagle's Voyage to South America, having cited the book as a mine of information. But alas, we have no way of knowing whether Charles Darwin did, while visiting South America, make some guacamole. And now you know the rest of the story. All right, in the two minutes or so we have left, we will delve into what is no doubt the most oddball story of the segment. A segment filled with oddball items, I would add. Here's the deal. Apparently a camera on NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has led to what scientists are describing as a surprise discovery. The orbiter photographed an image which shows a circular fracture pattern which appears to outline a head, a pair of beady eyes, which are formed by craters, and a V-shaped collapse structure which resembles a snout. And no, the result is not Marjorie Taylor Greene, Mr. McMillan. But I have to say, damn if it doesn't look like the head of a bear. I mean, this is radio. I can't show you a picture, but you probably should find this one online and take a gander yourself. It looks like a bear. Now, back in the day when they were first orbiting Mars with cameras, they they took a picture of something that kind of looked like a face. Better later imaging showed it to be simply a mesa. But in the meantime, apparently NASA forced its scientists to spend some time taking a closer look at that face to satisfy the curiosity of knuckleheads back at home who's, who thought it really was a face. Anyway, it definitely was not a human face, and it's definitely not a bear either. We need to take a short break. Let's do so. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Don't go away.